Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. So we sang that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, one of my favorite songs we sing. Let us never forget the mystery in this redemptive story we've been following. Like it's easy for us sometimes because we have it all written out before us just to look and say, oh yeah, well I remember God created everything. Yeah, we have uh, Abraham and then they go to Egypt and all that's great. Imagine, imagine if you will, living that in person and seeing God bring a whole, imagine you're the Israelites leaving Egypt and wondering, God, what are you doing here? Like there's something, I, I know you're doing something deeper here. What are you doing? Then they leave Egypt and God gives them the law. We looked at last week and the law was all about God saying, hey, now that you believe, now that you, I have declared you a covenant people. Israel, I have chosen you. You are going to be my people. Now that I've chosen you and you believe, here's how to live. Here's what it looks like to orient your life around me, around God. And then here's what it looks like to, to treat other people, the Ten Commandments. Here's how you should live. And imagine, though, being there and thinking, okay, there's a mystery to that. What, what is God doing here? Like, it seems like, and the writer of Hebrews, we'll look at Hebrews later on today, we'll talk about all these things as shadows. These are shadows of a deeper reality. Like the point, if you look at a shadow, the point's not the shadow. The point is whatever is making the shadow, right? And so all these things, this mystery that God's been doing are all shadows pointing to this deeper reality. And there's a mystery. And today we're going to look at another mystery of kind of what God was doing. And imagine again, you're in this, you're living this. This is flesh and blood and it's real. And all of a sudden God comes to you and says, okay, here's what we're going to do next. We have this tent be like, okay, God, what are you doing here? There's a mystery to the Old Testament that, that now, because we have the New Testament, we see how it all unfolded, how this plan of God unfolds. But let's jump into the mystery, if we will. So God gave them the Ten Commandments. Remember, obedience to the Ten Commandments came out of an acceptance with God. God said, you are my people, now be obedient. The one of the biggest misconceptions, it wasn't the people obeying the Ten Commandments that made God accept them. The Ten Commandments were given out of their acceptance. God chose them. And the, the commandments were good. God saying, here's how to live. Now here's the problem. The problem is not the commandments. The problem is the hearts of the people. The people were broken and their hearts were wicked. So while God said, here's how I want you to live, don't murder, they couldn't follow it. Put no other gods before me, they, they couldn't follow it. The problem is not the law, the commandments, the problem was their hearts were wicked and it wasn't just like they did a few bad things. This, what the Bible calls sin, was systemic. It went all the way through them. We teach that humans are totally depraved. The idea that we are, we are broken all the way to our core. It's not just that we do a few things wrong sometimes. It's that in our hearts, we are broken. And so we have this problem. God's given these commands. He said, you're going to be my covenant people. 
but the people's hearts are broken and they're evil and they're sinful. Now because of their sin, they deserve God's wrath and judgment. But remember, God has said, you are my people. You're my chosen people. I'm going to bring the Savior. So we have this problem now. How can a sinful, broken, evil, systemically evil people who deserve wrath, how can they become reconciled to this holy God that can't be in the presence of sin? If they're going to be his people and have a relationship with them, then their sin and his holiness can't come together. God's character, his holiness, demands that he is just, that he punishes sin. But yet in his love for this covenant people, he's promised to be with them. How does this work? There must be a solution. There must be a mediator. Where you have sinful, broken people and a holy God, there must be a mediator to bring them together. So God, in this shadow, in this mystery of what he is doing, is going to institute a system. It's a priesthood system. And these priests will be the mediator between a sinful, broken people and a holy God. Up to this point, Moses has been the mediator. He, brought, he led them and brought them to Egypt. He told them, here's how you're supposed to live. Well, now God's going to change and he's going to move on into this idea of this priest system. And this priest system will now be the mediator. So as we've been walking through in the book of Exodus, the last few books, uh, uh, chapters of the book of Exodus speak of this time, of this system that God's going to put in place. And then it moves on into Leviticus and we'll spend a little time in both those, in both those books today. But if God is going to have a covenant people who are sinful, there must be a mediator. There must be some type of provision for sin. And God's going to be very specific to his people on how to do this. Here's what Hebrews 9.22 says. By the way, it's been hard for me this week because I want to preach two sermons, one out of Leviticus and one out of Hebrews. But it would be like three hours long and I knew you'd kill me this morning. So I'm going to try to make this happen. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Keep that up there. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So you have a sinful people and a holy God, and God says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to dwell among you, but here's the problem. You're sinful. So here's the system that God's going to put in place, that blood is a covering for sin. And without blood... There is no covering. That's why if you go back to the book of Genesis, what happens when Adam and Eve sin and they go hide? Do you remember? God makes clothes for them out of animal skins to cover their nakedness. Something dies, blood is spilled. Blood is the, co is, is the covering for sin. You look at uh, Moses leading the people out of Egypt. What did he do right before he let them out? Do you remember? Sacrificed a lamb for each household and put the blood over the door. Blood is a covering for sin. So you have this sinful, broken people and a God who said, you're going to be my people. So now in this mystery of what God's doing, he's going to put in place this system that is bloody. If you have a weak stomach today, sorry. It is bloody. Because blood is the covering for sin. 
So in Exodus 25 through 30, God kind of lays out the, the details of this system. And this system's going to first resolve, revolve around something called a tabernacle. Tabernacle just means tent. And then it's going to go in the book of Leviticus, and God's going to lay out in great detail how these sacrifices are going to be done. If you ever try to read through the, book of the, or read through the whole Bible, anyone, like start to finish, you get to the end of, uh, of Exodus Leviticus, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is never going to end. Right? You've been there? Okay, you're supposed to do this. It's supposed to be three cubits long and this, and you got like six chapters all about measurements. Right? If you're a math person, you're like, oh, this is awesome. For the rest of us, we're like, ugh. Like God's very specific in how he's going to do this. Turn to Exodus chapter 40. So God's been laying out in the end of Exodus the details of this tabernacle. Think tent. Think like a big, a big uh, tent like we would set up, circus-type tent without a roof. God's laying out the details. It's called the tabernacle. And here's what he says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud, which the cloud represents God's holiness, covered the tent of meeting, or this tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you remember, before this, God's presence came down on Mount Sinai. God said, Moses, you go up to Mount Sinai, Israel stay at the base. My presence in this cloud is going to come down. My holiness will come down over Mount Sinai. Well, here's what God's doing in this mystery. He's saying, now I'm going to move my presence from Mount Sinai to among you in this tent, in this tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. Remember, Moses is sinful too. He's broken. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the next step in God revealing himself to these people, this next mystery. And again, if, you were, if you're living among this, you hear this, okay, you're gonna build a tent out in the middle of the desert, okay? And the glory of the Lord is gonna come down in this tent. You gotta be thinking, okay, but why? Like, what, what does all this mean? There's a mystery to what God's doing. And so when we think about this idea of the tabernacle, uh, if you'll throw the picture up, I want to give you a little example of what the tabernacle looked like. So the tabernacle was just this big tent. You can see this outside um, edge that came around. That was called the courtyard. And so that was, a, that was a barrier that separated the rest of the camp of Israel. So Israel had been camped all around this, and you had this courtyard there. That fence that went around was there to give the, il the illustration, not just illustration, to show the people there is a separation between God and you. So God's going to dwell in that middle place called the Holy of Holies. That's where his presence, his glory is going to come down, and the people are on the outside. And so if you're in Israel looking at the tent, here's what you see. There is a separation between me and God. There was only one entrance to this tent. It was at the very front on this far right side. The only entrance in, and right inside the entrance was this altar, the altar of sacrifice. And to, to ever enter in to this, even the courtyard, meant you would first have to offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, on this altar. To purify yourself, to even come into the tent, the courtyard of God. And then inside the tent, in this, this next little area, is what they call the holy place. It was the inner tent. And throughout the year, the priest in this courtyard and in the holy place would offer sacrifice every day for sins. 
And, and if you've ever been around um, like butchering animals, when you kill an animal, it's not just like a little couple drops of blood come out. Blood pours out. And this altar of sacrifice would have had blood everywhere because every day, over and over and over again, people are bringing animals to sacrifice for the payment of sin. I would imagine, when I've recorded this, I would imagine there would be streams and pools of blood coming out from this tent, out into the ground. And as Israelites are looking at this, they're seeing there's a separation, and they're seeing this blood, these animals be killed, and it's communicating something to them. There is a separation between me and God, but blood, somehow in the mystery of God, why, why blood? That blood covers that. That blood makes me acceptable. And then on the inside, a place called the Holy of Holies, you see there's a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies because that is where God's presence dwelled. Now, eventually, later on in history, they'll build a temple and it'll be there. But for now, it's this tent. It's this tabernacle. Remember, they are a wandering people. So this tent has to be portable. And God's holiness is going to dwell right in the middle in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is off limits. You could never go back there. And if you did, you would die. Except for once a year, there was one day whenever the priest, the high priest, would go back behind the Holy of Holies, and we're going to read that today, and he would offer a sacrifice. And this was a, this was a, a holy, almost a scary ordeal for these priests because you were going into the presence of God to mediate between God and the people to offer a sacrifice. There was a curtain that restricted that area. And that curtain communicated, that is off limits. God's presence is off limits. If you go there, you will die because you are sinful and you are broken. Now that day, if, you, if you've ever been looking at your calendar, I remember in school, it was football season back in high school one time, and uh, I came across, I was looking up in the calendar, and I came across this day called Yom, Yom Kippur. Anyone seen that or Yom Kippur? And I was like, oh, it's Yom Kippur. We gotta, get the, we gotta be off school. Like, come on, we gotta be off school. What's Yom Kippur? It's this day. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's the Jewish holy day, the Day of Atonement that we're going to read about today. And only on one day, Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, could someone, the priest, go behind the curtain and enter the holy place of God. And so we have this mystery of what God's doing. It's called the tabernacle. And here's the message of the tabernacle. You'll throw up the next slide. Here's the message that the people are seeing. That God desires to dwell with the people. God's no longer on Mount Sinai. His glory is not up there. It's now among the camp, among the people. But sin separates people from God. That's the communication of this tent, of this tabernacle. There's always separation around the courtyard, around the inner holy place, and a curtain Separating the holy of holy place. There is a separation between God and people. But number three, that God provides a mediator who offers a sacrifice for sins. That's what the whole tabernacle system is trying to communicate to us. And it's this mystery, it's this shadow of what's to come. And so day after day, priests would offer sacrifices. There would be a constant stream of blood. And then one day, a year, on Yom Kippur, the priest would enter 
the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, to offer a one-time, once-a-year sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Let's look at it. Leviticus 16. So we're skipping through the end of Exodus and getting into, into Leviticus. In the middle of chapter 16, we come across this day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, I'm going to read most of this chapter, and I'm not going to offer a lot of commentary. We're just going to let the Bible speak. I'll, I'll, I'll help us out a little bit. Let's look at it. So make sure you have your Bibles or your phones or something. Verse 1 of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So these two sons made a big mistake and went behind the Holy of Holies and just, they're done. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Remember I've told you guys before, every time God's holiness shows up, people fall to their knees. And most of them think they're going to die. And some of them do. If the Lord would just help us get a bigger picture of who he is. He's not the man upstairs. He's not just, you know, God that we throw out in country songs. Like he's this holy, ferocious, loving, wrathful God. Verse 3. But in this way, Aaron, who's the high priest, shall come into the holy place. Here's how he will enter. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So before he ever enters into the holy place, he must take a ram and a bull. He must kill them for himself because he's a high priest. That means anything special. Guys, remember, I've told you, I'm no better than any of you. So he must offer a sacrifice for himself. He shall put it on the holy linen. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. So he will remove his regular clothes and he will put on some different clothes. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So this is the day of atonement. So if you're an Israelite, this is the biggest day of the year for you. This is the day that the high priest would go into the presence of God and would mediate on your behalf. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. So he's going to come into that tent. He has two goats with them. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, some of your translations say scapegoat. I've, I've tried to research this this week. There's like basically four different ideas on what this Azazel or scapegoat means, and no one really knows. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to ask two goats. He's going to cast lots on them, and one goat is going to be 
a sacrifice to the Lord. And this other goat is going to be for Azazel, or what we would call a scapegoat. You ever heard the term scapegoat? It's going to make sense in a little bit. So picture two goats on either side of the priest. Verse 9. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel or for the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness. So two goats. Day of atonement, Yom Kippur. All of Israel is watching. The priest goes in. He casts lots. He decides one Goat will be a sin offering. One goat will be a scapegoat. Verse 15. And he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Now, I don't want to be too gruesome. But he would take a goat and the one that would be a sacrifice and he would take a knife and he would slit the throat of the goat and blood would pour out and the goat if you ever seen butchering would flop around and the blood would spray and the the body of that goat would be covered blood it is a bloody violent ordeal and it's meant to represent sin because sin is a bloody bloody violent ordeal And if you can imagine, all this blood pours out, and then here's what the priest does. He takes this blood, and he starts dipping his hand, he starts sprinkling it everywhere. Imagine how how bloody this, this environment was. Verse 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement into the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for the assembly of Israel. See, God has very specific details on how this will all take place. Then the priest shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. It shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. It shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And so there's this whole, there's whole process that goes on where he kills the blood and, he, and he, seven times he takes the blood and he puts it everywhere. And God's communicating something to the people. He's communicating if forgiveness is going to come, blood must be spilled. And it's violent, and it's gruesome, and the blood covers everywhere. Verse 20. Remember, this is that first goat. And once he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meaning, the altar, he shall present the live goat. So we've just killed the first goat, blood everywhere. Now he has the live goat. Remember, two goats that are coming before him. And here's what happens. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put on them on on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by by the hand of a man who's in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat free 
in the wilderness. So here's what happens with the second goat. After he's killed the first one, he takes the second goat, and the priest would take his hands and put it on the goat's head. And he would there confess the sins of Israel. God, we have turned our back on you. God, we continue to put up idols and worship idols. We continue to not believe you. And we just confess all the sins of Israel on that goat. And then that goat would be led out into the wilderness, away from the camp, away from the people of Israel, as this visual of sin must be, not just bloodshed for and atoned for, but sin must be taken away. And imagine you're there and you're watching this goat wander off into the wilderness, never come back, to go out and die in the wilderness, and it's communicating to you, my sin is costly, but God takes it away. He removes it. And so this goat would wander out, and this innocent animal would bear the sins of guilty people and be taken away, never to return. Verse 29. And this will be a statute to you forever. Then the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. This is that day. You shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. So the requirement of this day for Israel is that they, what the Bible says, afflict themselves. Now here's what that means. They take a day and they fast and they pray, and they consider their life, and they confess their sins, and they do no work, and they look to the sacrifice being made, and they believe that God counts that sacrifice as sufficient, and God forgives them. And they repent, and they turn themselves away of all the sin that caused that animal sacrifice. That was what the day was like. And it's this holy, special day in the life of Israel where once a year this Big fanfare would take place and atonement would be made. See, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was meant to show the people there must be a sacrifice for sins. And there is a continual need for a substitutionary atonement or substitute sacrifice for sins because Israel kept sinning. It's not like the priest can do this once, say, okay, Israel, now we're good. No, because as soon as he does it, the problem is they go right back out and they screw up again. And so they're in this need again for this sacrifice. And the day of atonement was to show Israel, believe that God has given us this system. And when we sacrifice this animal, that God says that blood is sufficient for your sin. Believe that, Israel. And then Israel, as you see this goat being led out into the wilderness, believe that God not just forgive your sins, but takes them away and removes them forever. Israel, believe that, and then Israel, repent, and confess your sin, and turn your heart away from what God would not want you to do. But in this one day, God's wrath of sin would be satisfied. Now here's the question. What's the point? What's the mystery in what God's doing? Why would God lead a group of people out of Egypt into the wilderness, give them this law, and then make this bloody System of sacrifice. What's he doing? So here's the reality. You and I are guilty. 
we've all sinned. I was at a, I was at a funeral recently. Um, and I always, I always, I always get uncomfortable at funerals. Uh, not because it's a funeral, but it's because uh, I've heard so many really bad funeral messages. And the whole thing, the whole question, which is the question of this one, is like, hey, if you die tonight, are you going to go to heaven or hell? And that's kind of the message. And this, this person at the funeral was talking, and they were talking about how we need to trust Christ, which is good, and we need to walk away from sin, which is good. But then here's what this person said as they were talking. They said, you know what? You know, I, I accepted Christ a long time ago, and God's been changing me and working on me. And here's what he said. You know what? There's some days that I wake up, and when I focus my life on Jesus, when I focus my attention on Jesus, like that day goes by, and you know what? I may miss the mark a little bit, but not very much. And I heard that. I just wanted to, like, jump up and scream. Because there's this, and I, I kind of grew up, and there's this belief that, like, well, sin, sinners are like, that's what the bad people do. They sin. And I'm a pretty good church person. I, I mean, I may miss the mark a little bit, but can I tell us, guys, if the mark is here, think of bullseye, we shoot that way. It's not that you and I come to church and we're pretty good people and sometimes we just kind of miss the mark a little bit and we kind of need to re- No, here's the reality. We are sinful, broken people who shoot in the wrong direction. Let's think about the idolatry in our hearts for a minute. Like we, we come here this morning and I'm saying we, I'm saying me, we come here this morning and we sing, right, and we say, God, you saved us, we believe in you, we sin in the word, we take communion, we do all this stuff, but here's the problem, our sin is still systemic. And as, as much as we want to love God with our lives, as much as we sit here and we sing and we say, God, I believe that, here's what's going to happen in the next five hours. We're going to say, we're going to take communion, we're going to say, be with people, and we're going to walk out, and some of us on the way out are going to look at another person and say, I wish my spouse looked like that. And then we're going to walk around the parking lot. We're going to see, uh, I saw when I came in, there's a real nice white F-150 parked right here. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to say, man, I wish I had that. Like my little RAV4 with a dent in the side isn't near as cool as that. Man, I wish I had that. Now, some of you are going to look out and say, man, whoever has that is just like really, they're just all about money. And you're going to justify yourself. I'm glad I'm not like that. And then you're going to get in either in your nice truck or your really beater RAV4. You're going to be driving down the road, and someone's going to cut you off in traffic. And you want to, in your mind, because you're a good Christian, you're not going to do it. And in your mind, you're going to say that they're the most number one person in the world, right? And you're going to get home, and your kid's going to be running all over the place. You're going to lose your temper on your kids and say, just go to your room. And that whole thing's going to happen. You're going to go sit in front of a football game. You're going to get way too emotionally involved in the Kansas City Chiefs, and your identity and your hope is going to be put on them for a little bit, and you're going to live and die based on what Travis Kelsey does and all that stuff. Let's be real. Some of us are going to have our phones, and we're going to start scrolling and looking at things that other people have and comparing ourselves to other people. Some of us are going to look at things on our phone that we shouldn't be looking at, 
Some of us are going to feel the weight of our brokenness. We're going to turn to numbing, whether it's Netflix or, or food or exercise or sexual sin. We're going to turn to something all in the next five hours. Guys, it's not that we barely miss the mark. It's that sin is systemic. Calvin says our hearts are a factory of idols. We just constantly keep producing new idols to worship. Our sin is systemic. We deserve to die. There's not a day that goes by that you and I don't need a mediator. There's not one day. There's not one day that you're like, man, you know what? I crushed it today. I mean, I just, I just nailed that mark. No, there hasn't been that day yet. There's not a second that goes by that we don't need a mediator. The day of atonement was a shadow of what's to come. The day of atonement, Leviticus is there to show us God desires to dwell with his people. We are broken, but God provides a mediator. So Jesus comes, and I hope you've seen the parallel. Jesus becomes our mediator. And he doesn't just offer the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Scott, you've crushed it on leading us in music to focus around the cross and to focus around the gospel. Every week, crushed it. The thing with Adam Day, absolutely crushed it. Because the center, the principal thing of Jesus is not that he was a great person, he loved people and he was cool and we loved Jesus. The center purpose of Jesus is that he would come and he would substitute his life and he would bleed and it would be violent for the sins of the people because we need a mediator. God, in the person of Jesus, became the sin, became the sacrifice, and paid the price for our brokenness. Here's what 2 Corinthians says, for our sake, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin. Jesus became the guy that looks at the other girl and says, I wish my wife looked like that. Jesus became the girl who says, I wish my husband was that successful. Jesus became the person who looks out and looks at the truck and says, I want that, or the one that tries to justify her. The one. Jesus became all of that. So that in him, we, broken, sinful people, might become the righteousness of God. Here's the deal. The whole Leviticus system, the whole tent and the blood and everything, it wasn't the point. It was a shadow of the point. The point was that one day God would send a sacrifice once and for all, for all time, and he would become that sacrifice, and he would lay out his life, and he would bleed. Just like that lamb or the goat or the bull would bleed, Jesus would bleed, and it would be violent and ugly. But in doing so, he would ransom and rescue sinners that might, they might come to God. So just like the priest when he came into the tent on Yom Kippur, just like the priest would remove his robe, so Jesus would be stripped of his robe. And just like the animal would cut and bleed, Jesus would shed his blood. And just as the goat 
was taken outside the camp to remove sin, so Jesus would be taken outside the gates of Jerusalem to a hill outside of the people, outside of the city, and there he would bear the sins of everyone. Before Jesus died, he would cry out, it is finished. The sacrifice system is done. One sacrifice for all time, forever, it is finished. The curtain that was always existed that separated God and the people would be torn when Jesus died, would be torn from the, uh, and, be, and would come apart to signify, hey, this separation between God and man is done. The sacrifice is done. Jesus would rise from the dead showing that God's justice was satisfied. The whole point of Leviticus system and the tent and the tabernacle and the blood was to point us to Jesus who became that. Now jump to Hebrews. Let's wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 9. It's in your New Testament. So Hebrews, chap- Hebrews is basically Leviticus in the New Testament. Showing us how the priest and the sacrifice system all points to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then Christ, through the ga- greater and more perfect tent. Not a tent made with hands. Not of this creation. No, this Jesus, this greater tabernacle, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Like Jesus didn't sacrifice an animal to enter the holy place, but by his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. You hear that, guys? An eternal for all time. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if all those things of Leviticus sanctify the the purification of flesh, like if God looked on all those things and said, okay, that's a good sacrifice, that will work. Here we go. How much more will the blood of Christ? Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, the sacrifice of Jesus was for all time. And here's what the writer says. Jesus didn't enter that tent. He didn't enter a tent. He was the tent. And Jesus didn't come in and offer a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And that sacrifice was good for all time. And here's what the writer says. I love this. If the blood of goats and bulls was good to forgive sin, how much more the blood of Christ? How much more God coming down in the flesh And the whole thing with the Day of Atonement was the Israelites would look at that sin and they would say, or look at that blood and they would say, okay, that is a sufficient sacrifice. Hear me. The whole point of the cross is that you and I would look at the cross and say, that is a sufficient sacrifice. I don't have to offer my own. When I go through the gospel-centered life in a green book with people, one of the questions I I pose to them, are we supposed to to continually go ask God for forgiveness? Or are we supposed to receive forgiveness? Here's what I hear from a lot of Christians. Well, I just, just got to ask God forgive, to forgive me of that. And, I'm, and it's almost like they're begging for forgiveness of God. God, please forgive me. And, and here's what I think God would say. I already have. That sacrifice was for all time. Just receive my forgiveness and live the life that I want you to live. How much more 
the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, jump there. Verse 11. Pointed to reminding us of this day of atonement. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Like it's never going to fix things. So every day that priest would offer sacrifices. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, one, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time his enemies she made a footstool for his feet. Here's what he's trying to communicate. Every day in the tent, this priest would offer sacrifice. Every single day, then once a year, this big thing. Here's what the writer says. Jesus offered one sacrifice, and then he sat down. When do you sit down? When your work is finished. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Israel, people, the work is finished. There's no longer need to keep trying to offer a sacrifice, that work is finished in Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see the parallel with Leviticus? Now, for the first time ever, we can go behind the tent, behind, or behind the curtain, by the blood of Jesus. Like we can go and remember this day of atonement was a Sabbath for Israel. They did no work. That's intentional. Because here's what God wants to show them. In no way will you work for your salvation. In zero way. So now we have confidence to enter the holy places. Not by our own achievements. Not by coming to church. But by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since now we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus. Here we go. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So the whole purpose of the blood sacrifice was not to beat the people up and think, oh man, I'm such a bad person and look what it caused, that blood's everywhere and this poor lamb had to die. And the point of the cross was not that you and I would look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's so bad. The point of the cross that you and I would look at that and say, my forgiveness is accomplished. Now let me draw near to God with a pure, clean conscience. Like the, crush, the, the cross should not make you like hang your head in shame. The cross should make you look up and say, now I'm free to draw near to God with a full assurance. So Hill City, Every, every week, the same message. Believe and repent. Believe that Jesus' sacrifice was good for you once and for all. That you don't have to bring your own. Believe that. And now repent. Let us draw near to God with a clean conscience. Because of God's sacrifice for you, you're free to pursue holiness. You're free to not look at another person and wish your spouse looked like that. You're free to not want to have an idol that's a new truck. You're free to not go yell at your kids and go off on them. You're free to not put all of your identity in a football team. You're free to not go to the internet or sexual sin or anything to kind of deal with, you're free. Like the whole point of the cross is that we would draw near to God with full assurance. That we would say, because Jesus offered that sacrifice, it is finished, I am clean, now let me draw near to God. 
Let me not make other idols. Let me not search for my identity in other things. Let me draw near to him. So as you came this morning, are you hanging your head because of your sin? Well, I'm just a sinner. That's all I do. I come to church, I can't even get it right five hours after I leave. What kind of person? It's not the goal of the cross. The goal of the cross is, I am a sinner, but I look up and I see Jesus and say, he paid for that. Now let me run as fast as I can after him. And let me be quick to repent of sin and quick to turn away and what doesn't, what doesn't give me more of him. Let me draw near to Jesus. So like the Jews had the practice of remembrance of a substitute for sin. We have a practice too, and it's right here. So every week, very intentionally, we have a practice of coming up front and taking bread and dipping it in this juice. Can't use wine yet, we might one day. And this is meant to show us Sin is costly. It's meant to show us that blood must be spilled, but it's meant to show us that it's finished. So when every, tea, every week we take that bread and we dip it in here, it's meant to show us we don't have to offer another sacrifice. It's finished. Let's believe in this one. And now let's draw near to God. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after it, he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this bread... This is my body, and my body is getting ready to be broken for you. Remember those lambs that you've seen? Yeah, that's what's going to happen to my body. It's going to be broken for you. And he said, he took the cup and the wine, and he gave thanks, and he gave to them, saying, drink this wine, for it's my blood. And my blood is a new covenant, a once and for all sacrifice of sins, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. So Jesus gave us this meal. And the point of the meal is to point you back to him as your hope. So today, when you take that bread and you tear it off, I want you to say, this is Jesus' body. This represents his body. As you dip it in the blood, I want you to say, and it is finished. Sacrificed is finished. Now let me draw near to him with full assurance of faith. Let me love him more. Let's pray. God, I pray we see the shadows of the Old Testament and I pray that every single one points us to the reality of Jesus. So this morning as we take communion, now that we have some knowledge behind where this came from, may it be more meaningful to show us that your blood was sufficient covering for sins. And may we believe and rest in that. And then with full assurance, may we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.